this program after David Foster Wallace. It, I'll keep my remarks short because this isn't a formal affair. We're not going to come up and speechify and talk about um, Foster Wallace's relation to the canon or to postmodernism. I think his work does that um, for itself. I just wanted to briefly mention how this all began. It came about very organically through our hub listserv at the Kelly Writers House. We were talking about um, his unexpected death. And um, someone suggested, maybe it was me, that we should have a, have a program reading from some of his work. So, um, the definition of organic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. CF my dissertation to come in two years. Um, organic dissertation. Uh, the only other thing I want to mention before we um, get started is that we'll also be having the second annual Cheryl J. Family Fiction Program uh, on Thursday, October 23rd, featuring Ben Fountain, whom uh, is the author of the Penn Hemingway Award-winning Brief Encounters with Che Guevara. He's also one of the Discovery New Writers, and his short stories are really excellent, so I hope you can come to that. Okay. Uh, so again, welcome, and uh, the first person we'll have up here is uh, Paul Santa Moore. Paul? Thank you, Adrian, for this great idea and for then following through on it. It's, it's lovely. Um, it's great to be here and to see some familiar faces, Mal and Thompson, and now Adrian and Jared. Um, I think I'm just going to share a few memories and thoughts about Dave. Um, Dave Wallace, is, um, he sort of preferred to be known. David Foster Wallace, I think, was um, clearly a, a pen name. Um, many, you can probably make a mental list of other Dave Wallaces that he needed to, you know, one or two of them right here in town, I think, that he wanted to differentiate himself from. Can you not hear me? Sorry. Um, and then I want to read um, one short thing and one teeny weeny thing. And I won't take too long. Um, I had the, I'm sure, quasi-unique experience of first reading um, Infinite Jest because my department had just hired David Foster Wallace. Um, I was at Pomona College in the English department for 11 years from 1997 until um, 2007 when I came here to Penn. And I was away on my junior sabbatical um, in Ithaca, New York, and uh, I I guess I must have gotten an email saying that uh, the search had closed and David Foster Wallace was going to be joining us. And so I thought, shit, I better start reading him. So it was the, the winter of 2001. Um, so I'm sure some of you have been reading Wallace for a lot longer than that. Um, but there I was with the, with the doorstop propped up on many smaller books, lesser books, or maybe not lesser, but certainly smaller books at the kitchen table. Um, trying to figure out what the writer of this book might be like at the water cooler, um, which I think is probably never a good way to read a book. But of course, it wasn't long before the sort of water cooler hermeneutic just sort of fell away. And uh, I was uh, just absorbed and dazzled and um, howling aloud. Uh, I remember getting to the, um, the video phone <laughs> sort of set piece and just like I could practically I, I, I barely believe what I was reading. Um, and after that, I was sort of there at the table every night for as long as I could manage to stay awake. Um, and had entirely forgotten the fact that this book which I was reading was something that was going to be a bridge to carry me in some strange way to its writer. Um, 
of course, because I was away that year on a sabbatical, I had missed the whole search. So what had happened was that Roy E. Disney, um, yes, the scion of that Disney family, had been approached by the college president. Um, uh, Roy Disney is an alumnus of Pomona College and had said that he was starting to feel like you know, he wanted to do something good for his alma mater. And, and so the president said, well, the English department is interested in, in having a new creative writing chair. And Roy Disney said, great. You know, um, as long as it's someone famous enough that I can brag to my buddies and people at cocktail parties about, you know, it's all yours. So the English department thought, what are we going to do? Do we really want someone famous enough for Roy Disney to be able to brag about him? And so they started making a list of people that they thought were well enough known, but also um, sort of boundary pushing in ways that would be exciting intellectually and creatively to have uh, in the department. And you know, Dave, Dave Wallace was the kind of platonic ideal of that, and they put him in there as the kind of unreachable asymptote and wrote letters to him and to others on the list. And then got a letter back from him from normal Illinois, I think is where he was, um, saying that he was very interested in sort of exploring things, wasn't sure, that he'd been, in fact, even more interested until he had found that, you know, many of his closest friends had also gotten the invitation to apply a letter. <laughs> But then he would, st he would still think about it. And so the negotiations, um, they were sort of potlatches of self-abasement between him and the chair, Rena Fraden, began. And many things had to be worked out in advance. Um, the, the details of the public reading, he was OK with that. Um, he was asked to teach a sample class, sample creative writing class, which kind of made him um, uh, took him back a little bit, but then he agreed to do that, to get a student paper in advance. But the big, um, the big obstacle was the department dinner. <laughs> um, because Dave, um, as you may have read, or, or if you've ever met him, uh, might have discerned, um, was not the most sort of socially comfortable person, or at least didn't think of himself that way. Uh, and as I learned later on, you know, when you wanted to invite him over, you sort of had to um, let him know well in advance, tell him exactly who was going to be there, because he kind of needed advanced time to psych himself up for, for sort of social occasions. Um, but finally, the dinner was agreed on. It would be, you know, at the chair's house. And, you know, basically everybody talked about their favorite book. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and that was okay. And so finally, he um, agreed to come provided that arrangements could be made for his, his dogs, um, who had been professionally diagnosed with emotional disorders. And so um, he, had, he really was very serious about, about the dogs. Um, they were his family at that point. Um, when I finally made it back to Claremont, I had him over and began to learn about the advanced ritual of the invitation and, and the sort of um, preparation. And uh, it was interesting because I had never met him before he showed up at my house, and I had a few friends over. And it's interesting the way celebrity, right, kind of warps social and conversational space. So for the first hour, we were all sort of trying to figure out how to talk to each other. And even people who weren't speaking to Dave were kind of speaking so that he might overhear them. <laughs> you know, it was almost as if he was sort of the seminar leader, and everybody was kind of routing their comments through him. And I could, I could see him become more and more uncomfortable with this because the guy had antenna you know I mean he was he was picking up all of this and so he sort of ducked into the kitchen to help me with help me make drinks this was sort of the way he would deal with the celebrity thing was to duck out and become very solicitous 
Um, but he wasn't so solicitous that he would let me get away with, say, misparaphrasing Jonathan Franzen's New Yorker article about Gaddis. <laughs> so there was a moment where he was handing out drinks, and I, you know, I gave some inaccurate sort of capsule summary of this article, and he sort of did that thing, you know, which in his books you usually see through the, th the three suspension points and the quotation marks, I think, or maybe the square brackets. He did that thing, you know, a kind of audible, though silent, um, hesitation, and then just, you know, had to intervene. So he, there was that, <laughs> there was that impulse to, to, to get things right, right, which um, I really grew to love. Um, and eventually his, um, his girlfriend and, uh, and, and later his wife Karen um, moved to Claremont and they bought a house and it was really lovely to see him start to relax to the point where um, people would go over t to dinner and he would clown around and play the host and I remember he, he loved um, to pretend as if, if he'd never heard the word couscous before. He would sort of walk around and say, you know, would you like some more couscous? Um, there was there's a kind of dimension of relaxation and clowning that was um, that was really reassuring. I think it meant that he uh, was relaxing and was feeling sort of knit up finally in that community. I never had the pleasure of seeing him teach, um, but I've heard a lot of stories. I was just back in Claremont this weekend at the memorial service, and a lot of Dave's former students and, and my former students too were there, and many of them spoke about their memories of Dave in the classroom. Of course, the, the bandana was always there, not just in the jacket cover photos. Um, and uh, he chewed tobacco for a long time, so there was this kind of um, open secret of the, of the plastic spit cup, which everyone would sort of pretend wasn't there, but then there'd be the discreet moment. And that was legendary. But even more legendary were the, the comments in four different colors of ink which students would receive on their papers, one for each reading that he gave the paper. And uh, even if, it, if you had written something that wasn't for his class and, you know, you'd say, would you please read this thing that I've written, he would say, well, you know, I may not be able to get to it. It might be, you know, months or something. And you'd say, whatever, take your time. And in a couple of days, you'd get it back in, you know, four colors of ink. Um, he was that attentive and that um, generous and energetic um, as a teacher. Um, you know, if you've read the piece on American usage, that he was a, a, a self-avowed grammar Nazi um, and apparently was sort of famous for stopping in the middle of a discussion, a workshop discussion of someone's short story to deliver kind of impromptu mini lectures about, you know, the use of the possessive with the gerundive and that sort of thing, you know, to, to, to most people obscure points of grammar, which to him were all absolutely all important. Um, and which I think he had learned to care about from his mother, whom he called the mom. Um, and apparently when he was named a member of the usage board, am I getting this right, of the American Heritage Dictionary, uh, his, and called his mom to tell her her whoop um, practically <laughs> deafened him and everyone else in the room. It was sort of, you know, aside from all the novels and journalism and whatnot, it was being a member of the, of the American Heritage Dictionary usage board that really was the sort of crowning achievement. Um, what else? He never um, made people read their work aloud in class, which I think is interesting. Um, just thought it was mortifying and understood why people didn't want to have to hear their voices saying their words in the classroom. Um, now his students are grammar nitpickers. You know, they are editors, they're poets, short story writers, novelists, um, they're academics, they're freelance journalists. And uh, I think his death has uh, been understandably devastating. Um, I think that 
you there's there's the fear that the loss of the teacher entails the loss of the teaching in some way right that the teaching in some ways is alienable but um, you know, Dave was all about candle power. I mean, if you've read his work, you know that there's just this kind of luminosity to the intelligence. Um, and I think it's a distinct property of the candle that it, it, um, it can disseminate both the heat and the warmth that it has to give um, without um, the loss of that heat and warmth to itself, right? That's sort of what Jefferson had to say about the candle and about the transmission of ideas. Um, and so there was a lot of discussion among his students and former colleagues about what teaching is, what it means to transmit ideas and to help others to find their voice, but for those voices to really belong to those people and not to belong to, to the teacher through some kind of mystified act of transmission. Um, sort of in, in personal vein, Dave and I used to go to this place, this kind of greasy diner called Maniac Mike's, which is in the local municipal airport. Um, and you know you could go there and not uh, not run into people you knew. And we used to just sort of sit um, on the runway and watch the little planes come and go. Um, though I'm told that from an airplane in the, over the Inland Valley, you can look down and you can see, you can discern sort of among all of the traces of sprawl, the sort of original grid of orchards. That, that was all orchard land at one point, and you can still see remnants of that. Um, and something about that I've, I've always associated with Dave, that he could at one and the same time have this incredibly granular view of things up close and also um, have the big picture in view. Um, and I feel like I was privileged to see elements of that. Um, also, uh, you know, the, remember the line from Wizard of Oz where Dorothy says to the, to the wizard, you know, you're, you're a very bad man, and he says, no, I'm you know, actually a very good man, I'm just a very bad wizard. And I think most people, if they're privileged to be good, are good at either you know, being a person or being a wizard, um, and not both. But I, but I really came to feel that Dave was good at both. He was a good man um, and, and a good wizard. And somehow, his wizardry had to do with his goodness as a person, with the kind of attention that he paid people, with the benefit of the doubt, with the, the real belief on his part, I think, that he had something to learn from anyone. Um, he was not someone who ever used that intelligence to belittle another person. And I think when you read him, you can, you can sort of see the traces of that kind of radical attentiveness to others, and to, particularly to his reader uh, in the work. Um, but sort of by, by the same token, I think, um, a lot of the, the wizardry was, uh, or a lot of his goodness as a person was the result of his being in some way a good wizard, that there is, uh, you could sense the kind of incredible processing power behind the attention that he paid people, right? You could sense the sort of multi-tiered ethical and um, technical imagination when you were interacting with him. Um, one thing I was really struck by during his memorial service, during which, I don't know, maybe six or eight people spoke, former students, um, former colleagues, um, and his, his great friend Jonathan Franzen, um, was, that it was a, they painted a remarkably um, coherent portrait of him, right? Often on those sorts of occasions, you feel as if you're looking at a kind of cubist version of a person, right? But but it was it was there was a remarkable stable account, remarkably stable account of him. And I think that anyone who got to know him even a little bit experienced that kind of integrity. 
You know, you might imagine someone who moved in the many worlds that he moved in and who wrote and spoke in the many voices in which he wrote and spoke to be kind of disintegrated in some way. But um, he had remarkable integrity. Um, and I think it was part of it was that he just couldn't stop being self-conscious in front of anyone. <laughs> so part of it was, um, it was not volitional, but part of it was also a kind of studied decision to um, try to remain as attentive and um, empathetic as possible, regardless of the person he was speaking with. Um, uh, I think one of the things I learned from him is that you don't just sort of start out being a good person or learn to be a good person, whatever that abstraction is, that uh, you know, for him, behaving well entailed waking up every morning and feeling as if you were bound not to behave sufficiently well and trying to compensate for that sense by, um, again, paying a kind of extreme attention, uh, which I think you'll hear about in that Kenyan College uh, address, right? The difficulty of being attentive, just being alive and aware. And I think that that was like, it was like a practice for him. It wasn't just a kind of ontology, right? Attentiveness was a practice. Um, one of the things that Jonathan Franz had said in his remarks about Dave was that there's a tempting um, narrative that we have about illness, and particularly about depression, right? Which is that there's the person and there's the disease, and that the disease attacks the person and obliterates the person or prevents the person from um, remaining sort of tapped into his own resources, his own desire to survive, and that the two really are separate, and that it's a victory of the illness over the person. And Franzen said, you know, that's both true and inadequate, you know, and that if you're satisfied by that narrative, in some sense, you don't really need Dave's work. You don't really need the writing, which, you know, infinite jest above all, but so many of the other things that he wrote is all about messing with that, with the sort of story of the absolute distinction, the bright line distinction between a person and illness or a person and addiction, a person and a chemical state. Uh, and that struck me as really right on and something that I wanted to share with you. Franzen also talked about how um, during the summer when Dave was um, really losing his battle with depression, he um, taught, they were talking on the phone and Dave said, you know, tell me the story in which this gets better. Um, and Franzen said, you know, you're, you're going to come out of this and you're going to do your best work. You know, your, your best writing is ahead of you. And Dave said, I like that story. You know, could you call me every, every three days and tell me a story like that? Um, but at some point, he just um, was no longer able to hear that story. Um, little things I want to just make a note of so I don't forget them, that he had a sticker on his office door that said, think it's patriotic, um, that he uh, was able to sustain a kind of freshman year love of college acapella music, <laughs> or at least that he was able to pretend that he had that love when he found out that I had been um, benighted enough to have sung on college acapella music, um, that he would refer um, winklessly, nudgelessly to um, terrible mistakes or howlers as boners. <laughs> um, uh, let, me, um, let me read you a piece. Um, from the believer, it's just like a page. Um, and it's kind of apropos of the election. Um, 
it's a, it's a 2003 edition of this, um, and Tina Fey and Dave Foster Wallace are, are on it, and somehow like, I can't help but you know, like, want to see Sarah Palin right in the middle. Um, not just because of Tina Fey, but because I, I, I wish Dave were here for so many reasons, but one of them, one of the trivial ones is I want to know what he ha would have had to say about Sarah Palin, who in some ways is kind of the anti-David Foster Wallace. But I think part of the message of this, um, this interview that he gives of Dave Eggers is, is kind of, is actually arrayed against that kind of Manichaean thinking. <laughs> um, Eggers says, you know, you wrote this book about John McCain for the 2000 election, which has just been republished. Um, you know, do you follow politics? Um, are you going to do more political writing? Should novelists be offering their opinions on national affairs, politics, our current and future wars? And here's the answer. This was an email interview that they, they did. Um, Dave writes, the reason why doing political writing is so hard right now is probably also the reason why more young, am I included in the range of this predicate anymore? Fiction writers ought to be doing it. As of 2003, the rhetoric of the enterprise is fucked. 95% of political commentary, whether spoken or written, is now polluted by the very politics it's supposed to be about, meaning it's become totally ideological and reductive. The writer-speaker has certain political convictions or affiliations and proceeds to filter all reality and spin all assertion according to those convictions and loyalties. Everybody's pissed off and exasperated and impervious to argument from any other side. Opposing viewpoints are not just incorrect, but contemptible, corrupt, evil. Conservative thinkers are balder about this kind of attitude, Limbaugh, Hannity, that horrific O'Reilly person, Coulter, Crystal, etc. But the left's been infected too. Have you read this new Al Franken book? Parts of it are funny, but it's totally venomous, like what possible response can rightist pundits have to Franken's broadsides but further rage and return venom? Or see also, for example, Lapham's latest Harper's columns, or most of the stuff in The Nation, or even Rolling Stone. It's all become like Zinn and Chomsky, but without the immense bodies of hard data those older guys use to back up their screeds. There's no more complex, messy, community-wide argument or dialogue. Political discourse is now a formulaic matter of preaching to one's own choir and demonizing the opposition. Everything's relentlessly black and whitened. Since the truth is way, way more gray and complicated than any one ideology can capture, the whole thing seems to me not just stupid, but stupefying. Watching O'Reilly versus Franken is watching Bloodsport. How can any of this possibly help me, the average citizen? You know, the, the way he refers to himself as the average schmo, I, I, I love. And I, I think it's actually, it's not just in some sense a performance um, or wasn't for him. How can any of this possibly help me, the average citizen, deliberate about whom to choose to decide my country's macroeconomic policy or how even to conceive for myself what that policy's outlines should be? or how to minimize the chances of North Korea nuking the DMZ and pulling us into a ghastly foreign war, or how to balance domestic security concerns with civil liberties. Questions like these are all massively complicated, and much of the complication is not sexy, and well over 90% of political commentary now simply abets the uncomplicatedly sexy delusion that one side is right and just, and the other wrong and dangerous, which is, of course, a pleasant delusion in a way, as is the belief that every last person you're in conflict with is an asshole but it's childish and totally unconducive to hard thought, give and take, compromise with the ability of grown-ups to function as any kind of community. My own belief, perhaps starry-eyed, is, is that since fictionists or literary typewriters are supposed to have some special interest in empathy and trying to imagine what it's like to be the other guy, they might have some useful part to play in a political conversation that's having the problem ours is. Failing that, maybe at least we can help elevate some professional political journalists who are one, polite, and two, willing to entertain the possibility that intelligent, well-meaning people can disagree, and three, able to countenance the fact that some problems are simply beyond the ability of a single ideology to represent accurately. 
Implicit in this brief, shrill answer, though, is obviously the idea that at least some political writing should be platonically disinterested, should rise above the fray. You know, here's where he rounds on himself, right, which is a, a pivot moment we all are familiar with in his writing, etc. And in my own present case, this is impossible. And so I'm a hypocrite, an ideological opponent could say. In doing the McCain piece you mentioned, I saw some stuff, or more accurately, I believe that I saw some stuff about our current president, his inner circle, and the primary campaign they ran that prompted certain reactions inside me that made it, make it impossible to rise above the fray. I'm at present partisan. Worse than that, I feel such deep visceral antipathy that I can't seem to think or speak or write in any kind of fair or nuanced way about the current administration. Writing-wise, I think this kind of interior state is dangerous. It is when one feels most strongly, most personally, that it's most tempting to speak up. Speak out is the current verb phrase of choice, rhetorically freighted as it is. But it's also when it's the least productive, or at any rate, it seems that way to me. There are plenty of writers and journalists speaking out and writing pieces about oligarchy and neo-fascism and mendacity and appalling sh short-sightedness and definitions of national security and national interest, etc. And very few of these writers seem to me to be generating helpful or powerful pieces or really even being persuasive to anyone who doesn't already share the writer's views. My own plan for the coming 14 months is to knock on doors and stuff envelopes, maybe even to wear a button, to try to accrete with others into a demographically significant mass, to try extra hard to exercise patience, politeness, and imagination on those with whom I disagree, also to floss more. Um, the, the, the teeny weeny thing is just um, a, a very small email whose context I can't even really fully reconstruct, but I think um, we'd been talking about the, the Borges story the, in the Garden of Forking Paths, and somehow also um, in, in a music exchange I'd sent Dave some songs that I had written you know, in my boxer shorts and recorded on my laptop. And, um, and here's what he wrote. If our perceptions didn't collapse the wave packet, that is, if we lived in a quantum world, then all forks is just what we could take. This is fun to think about, especially in what sense we'd still be we, that is, I and you, if we could do this. Such noodling is sort of my version of making music on my home studio late at night, dot, dot, dot. I think when a person dies, and particularly when a person ends his own life, um, there's, a, there's a kind of recourse to the counterfactual, right? There's a sense in which the garden of forking paths kind of opens up again, and in which you begin to dwell in um, adjacent worlds where things didn't turn out that way, you know? It's a kind of a wish fulfillment, a wish for things to be otherwise. Um, I think in some ways with writers, we have the privilege though of the writings being a kind of counterfactual uh, world. Um, you know, having, having been trained as a kind of post-structuralist in the 80s, you know, I, it's almost a reflex for me to, to say that writing is not about the voice, right? Writing is about the absence of voice, that sort of critique of phonocentrism. But there's also a way in which um, when, the, when the voice is gone, right, the writing actually gives us a world in which that person is in some way still there. And I think it was part of Dave's unique gift that a lot of his, rice, a lot of his voice remained in the writing. Um, or maybe that the writing actually captured a lot of the way that he talked and the way that he thought. And so um, it's a little comforting to me to think that that voice or some version of it that the warmth, um, both the warmth and the luminosity of that voice is still there for us to keep encountering um, and, and that, that that won't go away. Thanks.
Hi, I'm John Carroll, and I'm reading the aforementioned Kenyan College speech. And I'm here reading it because I emailed it to Adrian and Jessica and said, surely someone is reading this, and no one was. So uh, I'm really happy to be here. I cut it down in the interest of time. Um, I hope I give you enough to both be coherent and to make you want to go home and Google it. If you Google David Foster Wallace commencement, you can find it pretty easily. I also made some copies of it, and the full length, and put it in the living room. Um, so I'm just going to get right to it. I guess I'll, I'll say what I'm particularly struck by is uh, its humanity and its ability to be both uh, not just self-conscious, but very selfless. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over, and the other goes, what the hell is water? The immediate point of the fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Here's one example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. There's no experience you've had that you are not at the absolute center of. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but you are, you, your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. As I'm sure you guys know by now, it's extremely difficult to stay alert and attentive instead of getting hypnotized by the constant monologue inside your own head. Learning how to think really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how you construct meaning from experience. Because if you cannot exercise this kind of choice in adult life, you will be totally hosed. I submit that this is what the real noble value of your liberal arts education is supposed to be about. How to keep from going through your comfortable, prosperous, respectable adult life dead, unconscious, a slave to your head, and to your natural default setting of being uniquely, completely, imperially alone, day in and day out. That may sound like hyperbole or abstract nonsense, so let's get concrete. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in, day out really means. By way of example, let's say it's an average day and you get up in the morning, go to your challenging job, and you work hard for nine or ten hours, and at the end of the day, you're tired and you're stressed out. And all you want is to go home and have a good supper, maybe unwind for a couple hours, and then hit the sack early because you have to get up the next day and do it all again. But then you remember there's no food at home, and so now after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. When you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. And the store is hideously fluorescently lit and infused with soul-killing Muzak or corporate pop. And it's pretty much the last place you want to be, but you can't just get in and quickly out. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit store's crowded aisles to find the stuff you want. And you have to maneuver your junkie cart through all these other tired, hurried people with carts. And eventually, finally, you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of the day rush. Anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front, pay for your food, wait to get your checker card authenticated by a machine, and then get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. <laughs> the point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing comes in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think, and if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think, and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to food shop. 
because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me, about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? I've worked really hard all day and I'm starved and tired and I can't even get home to eat and unwind because of all these stupid goddamn people. Look, if I choose to think this way, fine, lots of us do. Except that thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic, it doesn't have to be a choice. Thinking this way is my natural default setting. It's the automatic, unconscious way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is that there are obviously different ways to think about these kinds of situations. I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people probably have much harder, more tedious or painful lives than I do. It's hard, it takes will and mental effort, and if you're like me, some days you won't be able to do it or you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, overmade lady who just screamed at her little child in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up there three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicles department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a nightmarish red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends on what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, will not consider possibilities that aren't pointless and annoying. But if you've really learned how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know how you have other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, low, loud, loud, slow, consumer hell type situation is not only meaningful but sacred, on fire with the same force that lit the stars. Compassion, love, the subsurface unity of all things. Not that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide on how you're going to try to see it. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. There's no such thing as not worshiping, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. But there are all different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious you will not hear talk much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. None of this is about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. It is about making it to 30 or maybe 50, 
without wanting to shoot yourself in the head. It is about simple awareness, awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water, this is water. Hi, I'm Michelle and I'm a poet. I'm gonna read um, first um, a poem that was written by the emo band, The Cold War Kids. It's very exciting, they posted it to their MySpace blog and it rhymes. And the poem is called, This Is Water. First thing you taught me was to keep digging inside at my intentions, keep asking why, why, why. Second thing you taught me was to be sincere, not like all these smart Alex sarcastics drowning in fear. You reminded me this is water and it feels good to swim after you hooked me and you reeled me up and threw me out again talked like professors, you talked like policemen and whores, you became so many people, I felt like I had known them before. The third thing you taught me is that when I'm waiting in line at the supermarket checkout, that my time is not worth more than your time. Your head like a lightning rod, your heart a cocoon, we certainly won't have another like you anytime soon. Also, um, the Poetry Foundation's blog posted uh, about the passing of David Foster Wallace, and in the comment stream, someone posted a link to allegedly the only poem David Foster Wallace had written. Now, I am a poet. I'm not going to say this is not a poem. I'm going to say this is a poem, and I'm going to say it's a prose poem, and it was published in Plowshares um, that was guest edited by Stuart Dybeck in 98. Um, and I think that the beautiful thing about considering it a prose poem um, is it is a very attentive form um, and it does show a lot of choices being made. The choice, um, the, the piece is called A Radically Condensed History of Post-Industrial Life. So you can see in that radically condensed the choices that are made, what to be attentive to, what not, what details not to include, etc. Um, and you can read this on Plowshare's website. When they were introduced, he made a witticism hoping to be liked. She laughed very hard, hoping to be liked. Then each drove home alone, staring straight ahead with the very same twist to their faces. The man who'd introduced them didn't much like either of them, though he acted as if he did, anxious as he was to preserve good relations at all times. One never knew after all, now did one. Um, and uh, okay, so if um, I'm just going to read something very quickly that incorporates some of his um, notes. Uh, if this piece had a title, it would be um, Genius Driven Mad by Attempts to Grapple with Infinity or 
This will probably be cut before publication, but I'm going to include it all anyway. <laughs> so I'm going to start um, with a <clears throat> one of his footnotes. Um, this is from his, his uh, meditation on infinity, which I think fewer people here maybe have read than everything else. Um, uh, he's talking about a mathematician. In modern medical terms, it's fairly clear that GFLP Cantor suffered from manic depressive illness at a time when nobody knew what this was, and that his polar cycles were aggravated by professional stresses and disappointments of which Cantor had more than his share. Of course, this makes for less interesting flap copy than genius driven mad by attempts to grapple with infinity. The truth, though, is that Cantor's work and its context are so totally interesting and beautiful that there's no need for breathless Prometheus Prometheusizing of the poor guy's life. The real irony is that the view of infinity as some forbidden zone or road to insanity, which view was very old and powerful and haunted math for 2,000 or more years, is precisely what Cantor's own work overturned. Saying that infinity drove Cantor mad is sort of like mourning St. George's loss to the dragon. It's not only wrong, but insulting. That is now, I think, uh, a sort of sobering footnote, right? So, uh, two vignettes. One, I trust that I will surprise no one by saying that infinite jest is, among other things, long. <laughs> Nearly 1,100 pages. Um, as a superlatively ridiculous high school student who drove to school with a copy of Infinite Jest thrown oh so casually into the back seat, David Foster Wallace forced to share prime real estate with packs of clove cigarettes and spurned mixtapes. I was thrilled by the enormity of the undertaking that was and is reading Infinite Jest. Silently though, I have to admit now, I was a little peeved. What was going on with all the goddamn notes? Let me remind you folks that the endnotes themselves had footnotes. I was 17. This was, I thought, a bit much. <laughs> Two. So I majored in literature and history as an undergrad, and I remember very clearly the day that I crashed the office hours of my very sage, I can see now, TA, in order to vent my frustration at being physically unable to complete the assigned reading in my history classes. <laughs> The literary was clearly already winning the battle for my affection, right? And I couldn't understand how we could possibly be expected to read all these texts closely and critically. She gave me an exasperated look, shook her head, and told me to read th enough to get the gist of the argument, and then, always, religiously, obsessively, to look at the notes. The best stuff is always in the notes. Now, many, but not too many, years later, when Adrian asked me to speak here today, I knew immediately that my David Foster Wallace, the pieces of his writing that have affected me the most, are of course, the notes. The best stuff really is always in the notes, in the unrelenting and obsessive delight in detail, in the gesture toward an ideal, possibly subterranean readership who will read absolutely everything you put down, um, in the belief that form matters, in the faith that narrative can sustain and be improved by a sort of politics of digression. His notes were his signature, now his notes are his, are his legacy. Um, in 1997, in a, in a weird interview, um, Charlie Rose asked him about his notes, 
what are these footnotes about? Where did it come from? 304 footnotes. Well, okay, if he's talking about infinite jest, then I, we have to make a little correction, right? There are 388. Um, Wallace told him that he inserted the notes to fracture his writing, to force the reader to slow down. So he took the, the act of writing um, and, and, and the practice of reading really very seriously. Um, and as someone who now works primarily in essays, I continue to think of his um, as model criticism. Um, in the footnote I'll read in closing, he characterizes himself as being not even an especially good or dedicated teacher, even as a mere reader who did not have the fortune to step foot into one of his classrooms. Um, I can't possibly agree with that. So um, this, this just always makes me laugh, um, having been on both sides of it. So um, this is in the... Uh, this is in the essay that Paul actually mentioned earlier, Authority and American Usage. Um, and he's just, he's just made a comparison um, <clears throat> between uh, he and fellow snoots, which is right his, his uh, term for being a grammar Nazi, um, attitudes about contemporary usage. Uh, he just compared that to um, the, uh, the sort of contemporary religious and uh, political conservatives' attitudes about contemporary culture. So closing footnote for you. This is true in my own case at any rate, plus also the uncomfortable part. I teach college English part-time, mostly lit, not composition, but I am so pathologically obsessed with usage that every semester the same thing happens. Once I've had to read my students' first set of papers, we immediately abandon the regular lit syllabus and have a three-week emergency remedial usage and grammar unit, <laughs> during which my demeanor is basically that of someone teaching HIV prevention to intravenous <laughs> drug users. When it emerges, as it does every term that 95% of these intelligent upscale college students have never been taught, e.g. what a clause is, or why a misplaced only can make a sentence confusing, or why you don't just automatically stick in a comma after a long noun phrase. I all but pound my head on the blackboard. I get angry and self-righteous. I tell them they should sue their hometown school boards, and I mean it. <laughs> the kids end up scared, both of me and for me. Every August, I vow silently to chill about usage this year. And then by Labor Day, there's foam on my chin. I can't seem to help it. The truth is that I'm not even an especially good or dedicated teacher. I don't have this kind of fervor about anything else. And I know it's not a very productive fervor, nor a healthy one. It's got elements of fanaticism and rage to it, plus a snobbishness that I'd know I'd be mortified to display about anything else. Um, so. Snobbish or not, um, would that we all take language that seriously. Hi, my name is uh, Stephen. I'm going to be reading from uh, one of Wallace's essay is called Shipping Out. It was published in Harper's back in 96. Um, I, after, sort of after Wallace passed away, I went on uh, YouTube actually um, to look for uh, any sort of audio or video of him reading. And whenever he would do a public reading, he would usually, or at least small sample size, but of the four or five that are on YouTube, he would usually read um, 
from this essay, Shipping Out, or another one he wrote about uh, a county fair in Indiana. So this is sort of a more lighthearted. Um, so this is from uh, Shipping Out. <clears throat> the whole first two days, and let me just introduce this by saying he was paid um, to go on this uh, celebrity cruise in the Caribbean. He was by himself. The whole first two days and nights are bad weather with high-pitched winds, heaving seas, spume lashing the portholes glass. For 40-plus hours, it's more like a North Sea cruise, and the celebrity staff goes around looking regretful but not apologetic. And in all fairness, it's hard to find a way to blame Celebrity Cruises Incorporated for the weather. <laughs> the staff keeps surging us, urging us to enjoy the view from the railings on the lee side of the nadir. And this is kind of funny. He renames, the ship is actually called the Zenith, but he renames it the nadir for the essay. <laughs> the one other guy who joins me in trying out the non-lee side has his glasses blown off by the gale. I keep waiting to see somebody from the crew wearing the traditional yellow slicker, but no luck. The railing I do most of my contemplative gazing from is on deck 10, so the sea is way below, slopping and heaving around, so it's a little like looking down into a briskly flushing toilet. No fins in view. In heavy seas, hypochondriacs are kept busy taking their gastric pulse every couple of seconds and wondering whether what they're feeling is maybe the onset of seasickness. Seasickness-wise, though, it turns out that bad weather is sort of like battle. There's no way to know ahead of time how you'll react. A test of the deep and involuntary stuff of a man. I myself turn out not to get seasick. For the whole first rough sea day, I puzzle over the fact that every other passenger on the MV Nadir looks to have received identical little weird shaving cuts below his or her left ear, which in the case of female passengers seems especially strange, until I learn that these little round band-aidish things on everybody's neck are special new superpower transdermal motion sickness patches which apparently nobody without any clue about how about 7NC luxury cruising now leaves home without. A lot of the passengers get seasick anyway, these first two howling days. It turns out that a seasick person really does look green, though it's an odd and ghostly green, pasty into a dish, and more than a little corpse-like when the seasick person is dressed in formal dinnerware. For the first two nights, Who's feeling seasick and who's not and who's not now but was a little while ago or isn't feeling it yet but thinks it's maybe coming on, etc., is a big topic of conversation at table 64 in the five-star Caravelle restaurant. Discussing nausea and vomiting <laughs> while eating intricately prepared gourmet foods doesn't seem to bother anybody. Common suffering and fear of suffering turn out to be a terrific icebreaker. And icebreaking is pretty important because on a 7NC, you eat at the same designated table with the same companions all week. There are seven other people with me at good old table 64, all from South Florida. Four know one another in private landlocked life and have requested to be at the same table. The other three people are an old couple and their granddaughter, whose name is Mona. I am the only first-time luxury cruiser at table 64. With the conspicuous exception of Mona, I like all my tablemates a lot, and I want to get a description of supper out of the way fast and avoid saying much about them for fear of hurting their feelings by noting any character defects or eccentricities that might seem potentially mean. Besides me, there are five women and two men, and both men are completely silent except on the subjects of golf, business, transdermal motion, sickness, prophylaxis, and the legalities of getting stuff through customs. The women carry Table 64 as conversational ball. One of the reasons I like all these women 
except Mona, so much is that they laugh really hard at my jokes. <laughs> Even lame or very obscure jokes, although they all have this curious way of laughing where they sort of scream before they laugh so that for one excruciating second you can't tell whether they're getting ready to laugh or whether they're seeing something hideous and screamworthy over your shoulder. <laughs> My favorite table mate is Trudy, whose husband is back home managing some sudden crisis at the couple's cellular phone business and has given his ticket to Alice, their heavy and extremely well-dressed daughter, who is on spring break from Miami U and who is for some reason very anxious to communicate to me that she has a serious boyfriend whose name is apparently Patrick. Alice's continual assertion of her relationship status may be a defensive tactic against Trudy, who keeps pulling professionally retouched 4 by 5 glossies of Alice out of her purse and showing them to me, with Alice sitting right there, and who, every time Alice mentions Patrick, suffers some sort of weird facial tick or grimace, <laughs> where the canine tooth on one side of her face shows, but the other side doesn't. Trudy is 56 and looks, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, rather like Jackie Gleason in drag. <laughs> and has a particularly loud pre-laugh scream that is real arrhythmia producer and is one who coerces me into Wednesday's night's conga line and gets me strung out on snowball jackpot bingo. Sorry. Trudy is also an incredible lay authority on 7NC luxury cruises, this being her sixth in a decade. She and her best friend Esther, thin-faced, subtly ravaged-looking, the distaff part of the couple from Miami, have tales to tell about Carnival, Princess, Crystal, and Cunard, too fraught with libel potential to reproduce here. By midweek, it starts to strike me that I have never before, that I have never before been party to such a minute and exacting analysis of the food and service of a meal I am just at that moment eating. Nothing escapes the attention of T and E, who are the waiters. The symmetry of the parsley sprigs atop the boiled baby carrots, the consistency of the bread, the flavor and mastication friendliness of various cuts of meat, the celerity and flambe technique of the various pastry guys in tall white hats who appear tableside when items have to be set on fire. A major percentage of the desserts in the five-star Caravelle restaurant have to be set on fire, and so on. The waiter and busboy keep circling the table going, finish, finish? while Esther and Trudy have exchanges like, Honey, you don't look happy with the potatoes. What's the problem? I'm fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Don't lie. Honey, with that face, who could lie? Frank, am I right? This is a person with a face incapable of lying. There's nothing wrong, Esther, darling. I swear it. You're not happy with the conch. All right. I've got a problem with the conch. Did I tell you, Frank? Did I tell her? Frank silently probes his ear with a pinky. Was I right? Trudy, I could just tell by looking that you weren't happy. I'm fine with the potatoes. It's the conch. Did I tell you about seasonal fish on ships? What did I tell you? The potatoes are good. Mona is 18. Her grandparents have been taking her on a luxury cruise every spring since she was five. Mona always sleeps through both breakfast and lunch and spends all night at the Scorpio Disco and in the Mayfair Casino playing the slots. She is 6'2 if she's an inch. <clears throat> she's going to attend Penn State next fall because the agreement is that she'll receive a four-wheel drive vehicle if she goes someplace where there might be snow. She is unabashed in recounting this college selection criterion. She is an incredibly demanding passenger and diner, but her complaints about slight aesthetic and gustatory imperfections at table lack Trudy and Esther's discernment and come off as simply churlish. <laughs> 
Mona is also kind of strange looking, a body like Bridget Nielsen or some centerfold on steroids, and above it, framed in resplendent blonde hair, the tiny, unhappy face of some kind of corrupt doll. Her grandparents, who retire every night after supper, always make a small ceremony after dessert of handing Mona $100 to go have some fun with. This $100 bill is always in one of those little ceremonial bank envelopes that has Franklin's face staring out of a porthole-like window in the front. <laughs> and written on the envelope in red magic markers always, We love you, honey. Mona never once says, Thank you. She also rolls her eyes at just about everything her grandparents say, a habit that very quickly drives me up the wall. Mona's special customary gig on 7NC luxury cruises is to lie to the waiter and maitre d' and say that Thursday is her birthday so that the formal supper on Thursday she gets bunting and a heart-shaped helium balloon tied to her chair and her own cake and pretty much the whole restaurant staff comes out and forms a circle around her and sings to her. Her real birthday, she informs me, is on Monday is July 29th and when I quietly observe that July 29th is also the birthday of Benito Mussolini, <laughs> Mona's grandmother shoots me <laughs> Shoots me kind of a death look, although Mona herself is excited at the coincidence, apparently confusing the names Mussolini and Maserati. <laughs> <clears throat> the weather in no way compromised the refinement of meals at table 64. Even in heavy seas, 7NC megaships don't yaw or throw you around or send bowls of soup sliding across tables. Only a certain slight unreality to your footing lets you know you're not on land. At sea, a room's floor feels somehow 3D, and your footing demands a slight attention that good old static land never needs. You don't ever hear, you don't ever quite hear the ship's big engines, but when your feet are planted, you can feel them a kind of spinal throb, oddly soothing. <clears throat> Walking is a little dreamy also. There are constant slight shifts in torque from the wave's action. When heavy waves come straight at a megaship's snout, the ship goes up and down along its long axis. This is called pitching. It produces the disorienting sensation that you're walking on a very slight downhill grade and then level and then on a very slight uphill grade. Some evolutionarily retrograde reptile brain part of the central nervous system is apparently reawakened though and manages all this so automatically that it requires a good deal of attention to notice anything more than that walking feels a little dreamy. Rolling, on the other hand, is when waves hit the ship from the side and make it go up and down along its crosswise axis. When the nadir rolls, what you feel is a very slight increase in the demands placed on the muscles of your left leg, then a strange absence of all demand, then extra demands on the right leg. We never pitch badly, but every once in a while, some really big Poseidon adventure grave wade must have come and hit the nadir's side because the asymmetric leg demands sometimes won't stop or reverse, and you keep having to put more and more weight on one leg until you're exquisitely close to tipping over. The cruise's first night, steaming southeast for Jamaica, features some really big waves from starboard. In the casino after supper, it's hard to tell who's had too much of the 71 Richebourg and who's just doing a role-related stagger. Add in the fact that most of the women are wearing high heels, <laughs> and you can imagine some of the vertiginous, staggering, flailing, clutching that goes on. Almost everyone on the nadir has come in couples, and when they walk during heavy seas, they tend to hang on to each other like freshman steadies. You can tell they like it. The women have this trick of sort of folding themselves into the men and snuggling as they walk, and the men's postures improve, and their faces firm up, and they seem to feel unusually solid and protective. It's easy to see why older couples like to cruise. Heavy seas are also great for sleep, it turns out. The first two mornings, there's hardly anybody at early seating breakfast. Everybody sleeps in. People with insomnia of years standing report uninterrupted sleep of nine, ten, 
even 11 hours. Their eyes are childlike and wide with wonder as they report this. Everyone looks younger when they've had a lot of sleep. There's rampant daytime napping too. By the end of the week, when we've all had all manner of weather, I finally see what it is about heavy seas and marvelous rest. In heavy seas, you feel rocked to sleep. The windows spume a gentle shushing. Engines throb a mother's pulse. I am Thompson. I'm going to read something that um, was published in Harper's in 98. It's uh, from a speech that uh, Wallace gave uh, about, it's called Laughing with Kafka. It's, it's about his, his, well, you'll see what it's about. One reason for my willingness to speak publicly on a subject for which I am sort of underqualified is that it affords me a chance to declaim for you a short story of Kafka's that I have given up teaching in literature classes and miss getting to read aloud. Its English title is A Little Fable. Alas, said the mouse, the world is growing smaller every day. At the beginning it was so big that I was afraid. I kept running and running, and I was glad when at last I saw walls far away to the right and left. But these long walls have narrowed so quickly that I am in the last chamber already, and there in the corner stands the trap that I must run into. You only need to change your direction, said the cat, and ate it up. For me, a signal frustration in trying to read Kafka with college students is that it is next to impossible to get them to see that Kafka is funny nor to appreciate the way funniness is bound up with the extraordinary power of his stories. Because, of course, great short stories and great jokes have a lot in common. Both depend on what communication theorists, theorists sometimes call exformation, which is a certain quantity of vital information removed from, but evoked by, a communication in such a way as to cause a kind of explosion of associative connections within the recipient. This is probably why the effect of both short stories and jokes often feels sudden and percussive, like the venting of a long-stuck valve. It's not for nothing that Kafka spoke of literature as, quote, a hatchet with which we chop at the frozen seas inside us. Nor is it an accident that the technical achievement of great short stories is often called, quote, compression, for both the pressure and the release is, are already inside the reader. What Kafka seems able to do better than just about everyone else is to orchestrate the pressure's increase in such a way that it becomes intolerable at the precise instant it is released. The psychology of jokes helps account for part of the problem in reading Kafka. We all know that there is no quicker way to empty a joke of its peculiar magic than to try to explain it. To point out, for example, that Lou Costello is mistaking the proper name who for the interrogative pronoun who, etc. We all know the weird antipathy such explanations arouse in us, a feeling not so much of boredom as offense, like something has been blasphemed. This is a lot like a teacher's feeling at running a Kafka story through the gears of your standard undergrad course literary analysis. Plot to chart, symbols to decode, etc. Kafka, of course, would be in a unique position to appreciate the irony of submitting his short stories to this kind of high-efficiency critical machine, the literary, literary equivalent of tearing the petals off and grinding them up and running the goo through a spectrometer to explain why a rose smells so pretty. A more grad schoolish theory literary type machine on the one on the other hand is designed to yield the conclusion that one has been deluded into imagining there was any scent in the first place. 
Franz Kafka, after all, is the writer whose story Poseidon imagines a sea god so overwhelmed with administrative paperwork that he never gets to sail or swim, and whose In the Penal Colony conceives description as punishment and torture as edification, and the ultimate critic as a needled harrow which, uh, whose coup de grace is a spike through the forehead. Another handicap even for gifted students is that, unlike, say, Joyce's or Pound's, the exformative associations Kafka's work creates are not intertextual or even historical. Kafka's evocations are rather unconscious and almost sub-archetypal, the little kid stuff from which myths derive. This is why we tend to call even his weirdest stories nightmarish rather than surreal. Not to mention that the particular sort of funniness Kafka deploys is deeply alien to kids whose neural resonances are American. The fact is that Kafka's humor has almost none of the particular forms and codes of contemporary U.S. amusement. There's no recursive wordplay or verbal stunt piloty, little in the way of wisecracks or mordant lampoon. There is no body function humor in Kafka, nor sexual entendre, nor stylized attempts to rebel by offending convention. No... Uh, Pinchonian slapstick with banana peels or rapacious adenoids, nor rothish satiriasis or barthish metaparody or arch Woody Allenish kvetching. There are none of the babing babang reversals of modern sitcoms, nor are there precocious children or profane grandparents or cynically insurgent co-workers. Perhaps most alien of all, Kafka's authority figures are never just hollow buffoons to be ridiculed, but are always absurd and scary and sad all at once, like in the penal colony's lieutenant. My point is not that his wit is too subtle for you as students. In fact, the only halfway effective strategy I've come up with for exploring Kafka's funniness in class involves suggesting to students that much of his humor is actually sort of unsubtle, or rather anti-subtle. The claim is that Kafka's funniness depends on some kind of radical literalization of truths we tend to treat as meta metaphorical. I opine to them that some of our deepest and most profound collective intuitions seem to be expressible only as figures of speech. That's why we call these figures of speech expressions. With respect to the metamorphosis, then, I might invite students to consider what is really being expressed when we read to someone when we refer, sorry, to someone as creepy or gross, or say that somebody was forced to eat shit at his job, or to reread in the penal colony in light of expressions like tongue lashing, or she sure tore me a new asshole, or the gnomic, by a certain, every, uh, by a certain age, everybody has the face he deserves. Or to approach a hunger artist in terms of tropes like starved for attention or love starved or the double entendre in the term self-denial or even as innocent a factoid as that the etymological root of anorexia happens to be the Greek word for longing. The students usually end up engaged here, which is great, but the teacher still sort of writhes with guilt because the comedy is literalization of metaphor tactic doesn't begin to countenance the deeper alchemy by which Kafka's comedy is always also tragedy, and this tragedy also an immense and reverent joy. This usually leads to an excruciating hour during which I backpedal and hedge and warden students that, for all their wit and exformative voltage, Kafka's stories are not fundamentally jokes and that the rather simple and lugubrious gallows humor which marks so many of Kafka's personal statements, stuff like, there is hope, but not for us, is not what his stories have got going on. What Kafka's stories have, rather, is a grotesque and gorgeous and thoroughly modern complexity. Kafka's humor, not only not neurotic, but anti-neurotic, heroically sane, is finally a religious humor, but religious in the manner of Kierkegaard and Rilke, and the Psalms, a harrowing spirituality against which even Ms. O'Connor's bloody grace seems a little bit easy, the souls at stake pre-made. 
And it is this, I think, that makes Kafka's wit inaccessible to children whom our culture has trained to see jokes as entertainment and entertainment as reassurance. There are probably whole Johns Hopkins U Press books to be written on this particular lallating function humor serves at this point in the U.S. psyche. Nonetheless, a crude but concise way to put the whole thing is that our present culture is, both developmentally and historically, adolescent. Since adolescence is pretty much acknowledged to be the single most stressful and frightening period of human development, the stage when the adulthood we claim to crave begins to present itself as real and narrowing, a real and narrowing system of responsibilities and limitations, and there is another footnote, one moment. Uh, the stage when the adulthood we claim to crave begins to present itself as a real and narrowing system of responsibilities and limitations. It's not difficult to see why we, as a culture, are so susceptible to art and entertainment whose primary function is to escape. You think it's a coincidence that it's in college that most Americans do their most serious falling down drinking and drugging and reckless driving and rampant fucking and mindless general Dionysian type reveling? It's not. They're adolescents, and they're terrified, and they're dealing with their terror in a distinctively American way. Those naked boys hanging upside down out of their frat house's windows on Friday night are simply trying to get a few hours escape from the stuff that any decent college has forced them to think about all week. Jokes are a kind of art, and since most of us Americans come to art essentially to forget ourselves, to pretend for a while that we're not mice, and all walls are parallel, and the cat can be outrun, it's no accident that we're going to see a little fable as not all that funny, in fact as maybe being the exact sort of downer-type death-and-taxes thing for which real humor serves as a respite. It's not that students don't get Kafka's humor, but we've taught them to see humor as something you get, the same way we've taught them that a self is something you just have. No wonder that they can't really appreciate the central, uh, no wonder that they cannot appreciate the really central Kafka joke, that the horrific struggle to establish a human self results in a self whose humanity is inseparable from that horrific struggle, that our endless and impossible journey toward home is, in fact, our home. It's hard to put into words up at the blackboard, believe me. You can tell them that maybe it's good they don't get Kafka. You can ask them to imagine his art as a kind of door, to envision us readers coming up and pounding on this door, pounding and pounding, not just wanting admission but needing it. We don't know what it is, but we can feel it, this total desperation to enter, pounding and pushing and kicking, etc. Then, fi uh, then finally the door opens, and it opens outward. We've been inside what we wanted all along. I just realized that we have a whole table full of food that Jessica and Aaron and I lovingly chopped up and bruschetta-ized. So um, please, everyone take a minute and go get some more food, bring it back here, and we'll set up for the next. refer to the Garden of Forking Paths again, actually. Um, I've created one of the ways that his work can fork by taking the technological language he used in one of the Madam Psychosis radio episodes and translating it into a sort of antibody, just as a way of honoring his memory. So here it is. Oh, and for anyone who feels like following along, it's on page 181 that it all begins. Maximalism, maximalism with reproductive symptoms, 
Also morbid extravagance, howling proliferations of tenderness deep beneath the surface of the skin. Those whose subconscious extremities are too expansive to be insinuated into mass and form alone. The unremitting flow this year of all years. The, sm the spasmodically wry of neck and twisted head. Those with Scrivener's palsy. The senseless whose bridges have collapsed, whose branches are wasting away. And yes, students of the composition of matter and speculators whose work is distinguished by rigor, abstraction, and beauty. Also those who are losing their heads. Those who have increasingly become their own thick skin. Them that seep from their ultra-structuralist fenestrations. Come one, come all, this circular says. The abnormal wideners of spaces. Those losing a sense of position, vibration, a discriminative touch. Significance, an appetite, a spine, a signal, a pound of flesh, the charmers and their hubristic evacuations, the splitters of infinitives, or those who erupt like a monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much-loved and elegant friend, <laughs> or those who suffer perennial estrangement from the palms of their own hands, or God forbid all three. Synaptical nictitation syndrome, you say? Come on down. Those who simply pertain, those who married into the sea, those who suffer the skins, Normally distributed scars wearing your overly complicated pasts, afflictees of hidden redness. It says here, come all you waitful. Blessed are the unpainters, for they. Polymorphic depigmentation, a tooth becomes a river. Interceptus transversus, the letrilingual. Swells in the defect, head and neck, the name binders, those with constant arms folding into the envelopes of time. Remerge within the universe's luminous avum is what this says. Hermitians back slowly away from the canopy of the inner product's flailing boughs. The imaginary problem and its limitless solutions. All ye crooked and lidless umbrellas, the hairless horizons, the love-handled, the exodoctrinologically mellifluous of quillen can fly, don't walk on down. The anatomically nosed, the unexpectedly hollowed, the collector of multiplicities with a cut black cloth in every pocket, the chronically collapsing wave. The one it says here, the one the cruel call two beers, one be for your head, one be for the observer's head in case your paths fall off. The winded and windless and wrung who keep to the wrinkles, those who beget only when. The quote were sickly challenged. Abandon your cynics and magicians. I'm reading this right here. Your corbels and constraints and complicated predictions. Find nests of secret scratchings and the inner resources to call at your own unsinking plight, is what this goes on to say, a bit thigmatactically, maybe. It is our place to say. It says here, style, not inflection. It says, come down the veil of the typed and spoken. Procedures and invasive amative apprehension to grip and to clutch. The almost ponderous swell of total information awareness is nearly imperceptible metacirculation as seen through the bestocking's lower leg and ankle of Dr. Node, the Schrodinger's cat of spines, the hope for weightlessness. It says, onward not until then. It says, never until then. The fatally attractive, enter, well, and come. The actionizing, becoming dear, side by side, with the atropaic woman. The inflammatory lifting of skin, the center of the visual field, the depigmented, medusas and odalisks both, come find common ground. All meeting rooms without views, that's in italics. All meeting rooms without views. Nor are excluded the utterly senseless, <laughs> nor the monstrously paralyzed, whose lines of sight are broken and frozen ever outward, two blades that will never cross or meet, nor either ing saucer, 
uneased peripheral nerves, an eruption of the formal variation of worm, the benign invasion that becomes an internalized harbinger, the multiple cutaway. There can be no adequate replacement for an absent part of the body. Mouth bones projecting out of their own domains, thorn trees or fleshy growths hanging from head or neck, chins evacuating the branches of the lower jaw, the shore of giants, the cloven roof, passages through the pores and interstices of the uninhibited, the inordinate but not necessarily metamorphic code of a wolf-like man's oversensitive follicle, the dunce, the quivering echolalia, the four to six hertz tremor maximal with the limbs at rest, the stunted and gnarled, the monstrously summarized face, fetter spiritus, the turned and arched in instinct, the in any way askew, the caviomorphic and the xanthusidae and ungulate looking, the trinostraled, the sheathed of lips and lid, those with those dark loose bags under their eyes that hang halfway down their faces, those with thinning skin, those with Rochon Duvino syndrome, those who look like they have superior orbital fissure syndrome, although they don't. Those who are more hollow than the past participle of lose. You decide. You be the judge. It says you are welcome regardless of severity. Severity is in the eye of the sufferer, it says. Pain is pain. Crow's feet. Lines of flight. Writing habit. A better world that didn't take. Paper cuts. Sorrow. A new beginning. Um, I picked something, um, because Adrian said that I had to pick something brief, um, from brief interviews with hideous men. <laughs> the 56-year-old American poet, a Nobel laureate, a poet known in American literary circles as the poet's poet, or sometimes simply the poet, lay outside on the deck, bare-chested, moderately overweight, in a partially reclined deck chair in the sun, reading, half supine, moderately but not severely overweight. Winner of two National Book Awards, a National Book Critics Circle Award, a Lamotte Prize, two grants from the National Endowment of the Arts, a Prix de Rome, a Lenin Foundation Fellowship, a McDowell Medal, and a Mildred and Harold Strauss Living Award from the American Academy of the Institute of Arts and Letters, a President Emeritus of PEN, a poet two separate American generations have hailed as the voice of their generation, now 56, lying. Un, in an unwet, extra-large Speedo brand swimsuit, in an incrementally reclinable canvas deck chair on the tile deck beside the home's pool, a poet who was among the first 10 Americans to receive a genius grant from the prestigious John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, one of only three American recipients of the Nobel Prize for Literature now living, five foot eight inches, 181 pounds, brown, brown hairline unevenly recessed because of the inconsistent acceptance reje rejection of various hair augmentation systems. Brand, trans uh, trans brand transplants, he sat or lay, or perhaps more accurately just reclined in a black Speedo swimsuit by the home's kidney-shaped pool on the pool's tile deck in a portable deck chair whose back was now reclined four clicks to the angle of a 35-degree WRT, the deck's mosaic tile, at 10.20 a.m. on the 13th of May, 1995, the fourth most anthologized poet in the history of American belles lettres, 
near an umbrella, but not in the actual shade of the umbrella, reading Newsweek magazine using the modest swell of his abdomen as an angled support for the magazine, also wearing thongs, one hand behind his head and the other hand out to the side and trailing on the dun and ochre filigree on the deck's expensive Spanish ceramic tile, occasionally wetting a finger to turn the page, wearing prescription sunglasses whose lenses were chemically treated to darken in fractional proportion to the luminous intensity of the light to which they were exposed, wearing on the trailing hand a wristwatch of middling quality and expense, simulated rubber thongs on his feet, legs crossed at the ankle and knees slightly spread, the sky cloudless and brightening as the morning sun moved up and right, wetting a finger not with saliva or perspiration, but with the condensation on the slender frosted glass of iced tea that rested now just on the border of his his body's shadow to the chair's upper left and would have to be moved to remain in that cool shadow, tracing a finger idly down the glass's side before bringing the moist finger idly to the page, occasionally turning the pages of the 19th of September 1994 edition of Newsweek magazine, reading about American health care reform and about US Air's tragic flight 427 reading a summary and favorable review of the popular nonfiction volumes Hot Zone and The Coming Plague, sometimes turning several pages in succession, skimming certain articles and summaries, an eminent American poet, now four months short of his 57th birthday, a poet whom Newsweek magazine's chief competitor, Time, had once abs rather absurdly called, quote, the closest thing to a genuine literary immortal now living, end quote. He shins nearly hairless, his shins nearly hairless, the open umbrella's elliptic shadow tightening slightly, the thongs simulated rubber pebbled on both sides of the sole, the poet's forehead dotted with perspiration, his tan deep and rich, the insides of his upper legs nearly hairless, his penis curled tightly on itself inside the tight swimsuit, his Van Dyke nearly trim, neatly trimmed, an ashtray on the iron table, not drinking his iced tea, occasionally clearing his throat, at intervals shifting slightly in the pastel deck chair to scratch idly at the instep of one foot with the big toe of the other foot without removing his thongs or looking at either foot, seemingly intent on the magazine, the blue pool to his right, and the home's thick glass sli sliding rear door to his oblique left. Between himself and the pool, a round table of white woven iron impaled at the center by a large beach umbrella whose shadow now no longer touches the pool, an indisputably accomplished poet, reading his magazine in his chair, on his deck, by his pool, behind his home. The home's pool and deck area is surrounded on three sides by trees and shrubbery. The trees and shrubbery installed years before are densely interwoven and tangled and serve the same essential function as a redwood privacy fence or a wall of fine stone. It is the height of spring and the trees and shrubbery are in full leaf and are intensely green and still and are complexly shadowed, and the sky is wholly blue and still, so that the whole enclosed tableau of pool and deck and poet and chair and table and trees and home's rear facade 
is very still and composed and very nearly wholly silent, the soft gurgle of the pool's pump and drain and the occasional sound of the poet clearing his throat or turning the pages of Newsweek magazine, the only sounds, not a bird, no distant lawnmowers or hedge trimmers or weed-eating devices, no jets overhead or distant muffled sounds from the pools of the homes on either side of the poet's home, nothing but the pool's respiration and poet's occasional cleared throat, wholly still and composed and enclosed, not even a hint of a breeze to stir the leaves of the trees and shrubbery, the silent, living, enclosing flora's motionless, green, vivid, and inescapable, and not like anything else in the world in either appearance or suggestion. Footnote, that is not wholly true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Amaris, and I'd just like to read an excerpt from a short story entitled Little Expressionless Animals. And just to cut you up to this point in the story, um, it's about two women, Faye and Julie, who meet on the set of um, the popular TV show Jeopardy, and they fall in love. And so at this point in the story, Faye is trying to decide how she's going to explain to people about her relationship. And Julie decides to help her by inventing a series of reasons for how Faye got turned off men, per se. And as she continues, the reasons get more and more preposterous. But the point being, of course, that people are more likely to believe the outlandish over the simple and obvious truth. And finally, she just tells her to tell the truth. So here's one, says Julie, to hold in reserve for when you're really on the spot. They'll eat it up. You're not going to get bumped. He's too terrified to stand up, even. I had to step over him on the way down here. Julie shakes her head. Tell them you were eight. Your brother was silent and five. Tell them your mother's face hung tired from her head, that first men and then she herself made her ugly, that her face just hung there with love for a black, silent man who left you touching wood forever by the side of the road. Tell them how you were left by your mother by a field of dry grass, Tell them the field and the sky and the highway were the color of old laundry. Tell them you touched a post all day, your hand and a broken baby's bright white hand waiting for what had always come back every single time before. Faye applies powder. Tell them there was a cow, Julie swallows. It was in the field near where you held the fence. Tell them the cow stood there all day, chewing at something it had swallowed long ago and looking at you. Tell them how the cow's face had no expression on it, how it stood there all day looking at you with a big face that had no expression. Julie breathes, how it almost made you need to scream. The wind sounds like screams, stand there touching wood all day with a baby who is silence embodied, who can, you know, stand there forever, waiting for the only car it knows, and not once have to understand. A cow watches you, standing, the same way it watches anything. A towel that takes the excess powder, Julie blots her lipstick on the blotter Faye holds out. Tell them that even now you cannot stand animals because animals' faces have no expression, not even the possibility of it. Tell them to look, really to look, into the face of an animal sometime. Faye runs a gentle pick through Julie's moist, spiked hair. Julie looks at Faye in a mirror bordered with bulbs. Then tell them to look closely at men's faces, 
tell them to stand perfectly still for time and to look into the face of a man. A man's face has nothing to it. Look closely, tell them to look. And not at what the faces do, men's faces never stop moving, they're like antenna. But all the faces do is move through different configurations of blankness. Faye looks for Julie's eyes in the mirror. Julie says, tell them there are no holes for your fingers in the masks of men. Tell them how you could never even hope to love what you can't grab onto. Julie turns her makeup chair and looks up at Faye. That's when I love you, if I love you, she whispers, running a finger down her white powdered cheek, reaching to trace an angled line of white onto Faye's own face. Is when your face moves into expression. Try to look out from yourself, different all the time. Tell people that you know your face is least pretty at rest. She keeps her fingers on Faye's face. Faye closes her eyes against tears. When she opens them, Julie is still looking at her. She's smiling a wonderful smile, way past 20. She takes Faye's hands. You asked me once how poems informed me, she says, almost a whisper, her microphone voice. And you asked whether we, us, depended on the game to even be, baby? Lifting Faye's face with one finger under the chin. Remember, remember the ocean, our dawn, our dawn ocean that we loved? We loved it because it was like us, Faye. That ocean was obvious. We were looking at something obvious the whole time. She pinches a nipple, too softly for Faye even to feel. Oceans are only oceans when they move, Julie whispers. F waves are what keep oceans from just being very big puddles. Oceans are just like rays. And every wave in the ocean is finally going to meet what it moves toward and break. The whole thing we looked at, the whole time you asked, was obvious. It was obvious in a poem because it was us. See things like that, Faye, your own face moving into expression a wave breaking on a rock, giving up its shape, and a gesture that expresses that shape. See? I want to thank you all for coming tonight. This has uh, been a great and wonderful um, sort of extravagant expression of David Foster Wallace. And when I was putting it together, I thought um, immediately of, well, what can we do? We can read, and we can read the entirety of Infinite Jest. And I thought, I had this great grand program where we'd read the entire uh, book cover to cover like we do for Joyce um, every once in a while, but especially on Bloomsday. But then Aaron Gauchi uh, said, Adrian, it's a thousand pages. Um, and we can't really fit that in it to a two hour, five, five days, five days. Um, so I want to close, and I want to close on remembering why we're here and remembering that it's about endings and honoring all the different pieces that people have written. And so I'm just going to talk about one really brief vignette about the one and only time I met David Foster Wallace. And by meeting, I mean being in the same room, a, a really large auditorium, actually, at the Free Library. And it was in 2004, and he came to give a speech, uh, or a reading for his uh, new book of short stories that just came out, Oblivion, in the basement of the Free Library. And those of you who know it know it's a cavernous, cavernous room filled mostly with mainline dowagers coming to hear um, the, the author du jour. And I can say this because with a snide face, because I consider myself a mainline dowager. <laughs> often at times. 
especially when it comes to the literary. We think of ourselves so snobby and snidely sometimes, so much a snoot, as, um, as Mel had said earlier. Um, but he had come in, and he read, and he wasn't wearing his trademark bandana and long hair, and he didn't come in with the usual glamour. He didn't come in with the usual star author swagger that so many of the other um, people on that reading series do come in. And so when he sat down and, and he started reading this story, it was an artful story, and it was a very conservatively crafted story, a story that wouldn't have been out of place in The New Yorker or Plowshares or, frankly, Chekhov. And all of us, all of us mainline dowagers were shocked and surprised. And when he got done, it was so beautiful in how it was crafted. And it was so emotional and empathetic. And it was not this postmodern gadfly, this um, contemporary, ultra-modern uh, provocateur that we had been expecting. And so none of us had raised our hands during the immediate Q&A that followed, and all of a sudden this, this older man in the back who uh, was probably homeless and um, wandered in halfway through the rainy, reading, raised his hand and started asking a question about chess because one of the characters in the story in a throwaway line had played chess. And David Foster Wallace kind of took it and ran with it and started engaging with this guy about chess and what chess means and how this fits into the story. And he seemed like he was as interested in learning about this guy, this random guy off the street, as he was in impressing us mainline dowagers with our um, grad school educations. And I say that, of course, because of my grad school education. Um, and I think that's what his work means to me in a sense. This sense of um, empathy and a sense of being present and being, as uh, Paul mentioned from the beginning, more present in his language than and in his writing than perhaps we have a reason to expect. So I am going to close by reading the last paragraph of Infinite Jest as horrible and inconclusive and... Um, frustrating as it is. The very air of the room bulged. It ballooned. Falcomen's screams about lies rose and fell hard to hear against the arterial roar of the sun. McSee was trying to muffle a cough. Gately couldn't feel his legs. He could feel C's arms around him taking more and more of his weight. C's arms, muscles rising and hardening. He could feel this. His legs were like opting out. Attack of floors and sidewalks. Kite used to sing a ditty called 32 uses for sterno, me lad. C was starting to let him down easy. Strong, squat, hard, kid. Most heroin men you can knock down with a boo. C. There was a gentleness about C. For a kid with the eyes of a lizard, he was letting him down real easy. C was going to protect Bimmy Don from the bad floor's assault. The supported swoon spun Gately around, C moving around him like a dancer to slow the fall. Gately got a rotary view of the whole room in almost untakeable focus. 
Point Grave was vomiting chunkily. Two of the fags were sliding down the wall. They had their backs to their red coats were aflame. The passing window exploded with light. Or else it was Demont that was vomiting, and Point Grave was taking the TP's viewer off the wall and stretching its fibroid wire over toward Fackelman against the wall. One of Fax's eye was, eyes was as open as his mouth, disclosing way more eye than you ever want to see on somebody. He was no longer struggling. He stared piratically straight ahead. The librarian was starting on his other eye. The bland man had a rose in his lapel, and he'd put on glasses with metal lenses, and was blind high and missing Fax's eye with a dropper half the time saying something to Point Grave. A transvestal had PHJ's torn hem hiked up and a spiderish hand on her flesh-colored thigh. PHJ's face was gray and blue. The floor came up slowly. Bobby C's squat face looked almost pretty, tragic, half-lit by the window, tucked up under Gately's spinning shoulder. Gately felt less high than disembodied. It was obscenely pleasant. His head left his shoulders. Jean and Linda were both screaming. The cartridge with the held-open eyes and dropper had been the one about ultraviolence and sadism, a favorite of Kite. Gately thinks sadism is pronounced sadism. The last rotating sight was a chinks coming back through the door, holding big, shiny squares of the room. As the floor wafted up and C's grip finally gave, the last thing Gately saw was an oriental bearing down with the held square. And he looked into the square and saw clearly a reflection of his own big, square, pale head with its eyes closing as the floor finally pounced. And when he came back too, he was flat on his back on the beach in the freezing sand, and it was raining out of a low sky, and the tide was way out. Thank you. And thank you for coming. 